Welcome to the Sweet Tata Fighting Podcast. Today we have returning guest, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Welcome, Mike. Hi, thank you for having me. No, thanks for coming on again. Um, if uh, anyone hasn't listened to the first episode we did, that's a few months back now, but you can check out Mike there. We talked about all sorts of different fitness myths and all sorts of different topics on that. But today we're going to dive into the area of seed oils. But before we get there, Mike, do you want us to give a brief introduction about yourself just for anyone who hasn't listened to that first episode? Yeah, so I started off at a Bachelor of Arts Natural Science, Master's in Mechanical Engineering, Biomechanics, then ended up uh, doing, started a PhD in Biomedical Engineering, dropped out, and then ended up finishing my PhD in exercise physiology and looking mostly at metabolism, uh, metabolic flexibility, and some heart rate variability. I've been working with clients online since... Oh God, what, 2011, I think, officially? (laughs) Uh, Worked in person before that. And then right now, I'm associate professor at the Kerrigan Institute. They do a lot of clinical neurology. I help some of the guys at Rapid Health Optimization, doing some analysis there. And then I'm also um, helping with running some studies at Tecton. So they do a ketone ester. Mm. And yeah, still have some one-on-one clients and working on a few books and other random stuff. Nice. I'm adding ketone esters to my little list here of questions. We can cover that near the end, but let's yeah, start, yeah. let's start with, yeah, let's start with the seed oil, the seed oil debate. Obviously I'm sure you've seen it all around the internet. It's still very pervasive now. Um, seed oil seem to be the, the main cause of everything that's wrong in someone's life currently. So do yeah. you want me to set, <laughs> just set the stage about, okay, the maybe, I don't know if you know how it even started, but either way, just kind of what's being said about it now. And then we can maybe dive into some of the research surrounding seed oils. And we can go into what seed oils are and that kind of stuff too at some point. Yeah, I mean, it appears seed oil are the new nutritional boogeyman for a while was gluten. And I don't know, I've lost track of all the things that it's been over the years. Yep. But it, <laughs> the, the, the craziest one I saw in seed oils was... I wouldn't say his name. Um, I actually like some of his stuff. But he was saying that he no longer uses the trigger pellets in his grill because they are pressed with soybean oil, even though they're not listed on the ingredients. But I guess he wrote to them, and I guess they do use a small amount in the mechanical pressing of the smoke pellets on the grill, which, okay, do what you want. But that, that, that to me seems like it's... A so again, it's to the extreme. Most of this is, well, if you have any amount, it's going to kill you now, right? And we'll get into <laughs> amount and dose and everything else. But it, it just seems like it's the next big thing that people should avoid. I'm sure there's popular books that'll be written about it, and it's, I mean, just the way the industry goes. Like you have to have uh, an evil thing, and it can't be a context nuanced discussion it has to be just horrible for you and you must avoid this and if you don't you're gonna die and that's just the way it goes <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's, that's marketing 101 right have a common villain yeah. to uh to yep. go against and seed oils is that one so are you actually sent me a whole spreadsheet breaking down some of this research i've kind of gone through it, but do you want to maybe start with okay seed oil what what are we what are we talking about when we're talking about seed oils regarding because obviously people might understand fat as saturated unsaturated polyunsaturated omega-3 6 9 etc do you want to just dive into a little bit of that and then we'll get into this 
Yeah, and that's one of the things that it makes it very confusing because again, you're talking about a seed oil, right? So you're getting oil from something that was a seed. Um, I still think one of the best books ever written on this was by Udo Erasmus, uh, Fats That Heal, Fats That Kill. It's a very, it's an older book now, but he breaks down years ago, like the whole process of creation of oils. And if you go down your grocery store aisle and you're looking at like, you know, corn oil, soybean oil, peanut oil, like most of the oils that have to hang out in the grocery store aisle do have a lot of pretty horrible things done to them. Uh, they have different extractions. Mm. They may have other compounds that are used, you know, solvent extractions, usually high heat. Um, but those are also very different from a quote unquote cold processed type of oil. <clears throat> so you have what is oil made from and you have how is it processed and you have, well, what amounts are you consuming? So usually when people are talking about seed oils, I think the best starting point is probably to differentiate omega-3 versus omega-6. Mm-hmm. Um, those are kind of two different types of oils. Um, omega-3, you know, both of them are essential. So we do need some amount of, of both. In general, U.S. Western diets are much lower in omega-3. So if people have heard of fish oil, fish oil, EPA, and DHA, uh, fish oil is something your body can convert from omega-3. So one of the highest sources of omega-3 is probably flaxseed oil. But the hard part is your body generally doesn't convert at a high rate into EPA and DHA, which is why mm. in a lot of studies you'll see uh, supplement or looking at uh, fish consumption, trying to figure out how much EPA and DHA are there. So EPA and DHA are essential fatty acids. You 100% need um, both of those. On the omega-6 side, you do need some omega-6. U.S. populations tend to be very high in omega-6 and low in omega-3 at a general population um, place. The confusing part then is, well, if we eliminate all omega-6, that's not going to be good. And then in the studies, if we change the ratios, is one way we could look at it. So one of the things I've done Mm. for... God, probably 10 plus years now, is uh, something from uh, the Omega-3 uh, test kit company. A little piece of paper you send out, you prick your finger, you bleed on the paper, send it in, and they'll actually run a lipid analysis of every single lipid, every fat that's in oh, your well. blood. And they'll look at EPA, so fish oil, and DHA. And they'll even look at a, what's called an Omega-3 index, so uh, cellular membrane incorporation rate. How much EPA and DHA can you shove into the cell membrane itself? And looking at, oh God, probably hundreds of those over the last 10 years, most people are a little bit too high in omega-6. Most people are still low in omega-3. So you can give them you know, fish oil as a supplement, reduce you know, some omega-6, and they're probably going to be better off. So on one hand, the CDOA people do kind of have an argument that yeah, if you're using a lot of these heavily processed uh, seed oils that are you know, stable at room temperature in the grocery store aisle, which show up in a lot of baked foods and fried foods and everything else, and your intake of omega-3 is very low, probably not going to be very good. Um, mm. But the fact that we're trying to eliminate all of it to zero, I think, is probably goes a little bit too far on the spectrum. Okay, interesting. So... If we were going to say rank the different seed oils, I know 
obviously we don't want to say something is completely bad and something is completely good. Obviously it's context specific, but typically, I mean, you mentioned some like the, the corn oils, peanut oils and stuff. What are the oils that would be considered high in omega-6 that you'd find in the supermarket that you would typically look to avoid if you were high in omega-6 already and you weren't consuming enough omega-3? Yeah, for most people, like the recommendation I give people, and I have this in the Flex Diet Sir too, is if you're in the grocery aisle and it is not in the refrigerated section and you're looking at oils that are not solid at room temperature, probably avoid most of those with the exception of olive oil and you're going to be pretty good. Mm. So your peanut oil, your corn oil, your safflower oil, your canola oil, just eliminate most of those and you're going to be pretty good. Now, most people are not really buying those and, and just sticking them on food per se. Um, so then you want to look at uh, salad dressings, uh, food that's uh, processed food, those types of things. But if you're eating mostly a, a real food diet, I don't need to worry that um, has some health benefits mm. to it. Uh, even butter is not really that bad. Again, that's going to be a saturated mm. and it's going to be solid at room temperature. So in general, avoiding ones that are liquid and room temperature, just kind of hanging out with the exception of olive oil, and you're going to be probably pretty good. Another thing, I, I think I must have heard this from the late, great John Meadows, and I've been doing it ever since, and that is avoiding to buy oils and see-through plastic containers that see sunlight or light that could potentially make it, yep. quote-unquote, rancid. Is that something that you would also recommend? You look for a dark glass bottle over something that is in plastic and see-through? Yeah, so a lot of like the peanut oils and soy oils, those type of things, they, they have to go through a lot of different processing to make them shelf stable. And they're in plastic and they're in places where they get a lot of UV light. So they have to do things to the oil that doesn't make them very healthy in order for them to be stable. So you've kind of traded mm -hmm. health for shelf stability. Where even olive oil generally comes in a, a darker container. Um, if you look at some of, you can get some different seed oils. Uh, like I know, I don't have any relation to it, but like Udo's makes a, a mixed kind of seed oil that has omega-3 and omega-6. But that's generally a, a cooler mm. process. It's not subjected to high heat. They don't use any solvents. And then it's in a cardboard box <clears throat> in a dark container in the refrigerated section. So those, in my opinion, while they're till... Technically seed oils, and you probably don't need a huge amount of omega-6. Some people may need a little bit more in their diet. Um, but if you're going to go that route and you do need more omega-6, like I agree, something like that is going to be quite different from the canola oil that's just hanging out on the store shelf. I've never actually seen oil in the, in the fridge section. What's usually there? It's usually by like the probiotic area, yogurt, um, you'll find it in there. You can find it in most stores now, but a lot of health food stores will have like kind of a separate little uh, refrigerated section. Uh, some of the probiotics that need refrigeration will kind of be in the same area too. Interesting. Okay. And, and is that mainly olive oils and things like that? Or is that something, is it completely different oils, different processing, etc.? You can get all sorts of different ones. I mean, you can get like a hemp oil. You can get like your... Uh, like a more of an omega-3 would be like a flaxseed oil. So flaxseed oil is high in omega-3. So that's generally going to be a cooler processed. It's generally going to be refrigerated just to keep it shelf uh, stable. 
I think the Udo's mix uses like everything from pumpkin seed oil to hemp oil to other ones. Um, so mm. again, you're looking at different ratios of omega-3 to omega-6. In general, most people need less omega-6, more omega-3. But again, the problem with just consuming flaxseed oil itself, which is high in omega-3, the conversion to EPA and DHA or the conversion to fish oil generally isn't real good. It's like single-digit percentage. Mm, um, so okay. just consuming fish oil itself as a supplement is probably going to be more effective there. I also wanted to dive into some of the ideas around, you know, people talk about seed oils or having too much omega-6 is you're promoting inflammation in the body, but no one actually comes out and defines what inflammation actually is. Are you able to dive into that? You know, what, what are these issues that can potentially happen if you are consuming a lot of omega-6 and have that ratio out of whack? And is inflammation something that is promoted? Yeah. I mean, at any level, you could blame almost anything on inflammation, right? And like all things, we do need some inflammation for the body just to work. It's just mm -hmm. a byproduct of, you know, being upright, not pushing up daisies. But if inflammation gets way too high, then it's going to start running amok and it's going to cause a whole bunch of other issues. And, you know, at some level, tons of things affect inflammation from sleep, training, nutrition, stress, all that stuff. I mean, if you want a very rough gauge of inflammation, although it has some caveats, you can look at like a high sensitivity uh, CRP on blood work is probably one of the better ways to look at it. Um, but yeah, it's like its own little rabbit hole of stuff because everything can be blamed on inflammation. And then mm. other people rightly say, well, if we didn't have inflammation, muscle growth wouldn't happen. We wouldn't have all these other body processes, which is also correct. So it's like most things, you need a balance. You don't want to have zero, but you don't want it, you know, running amok and doing everything in your body either. Yeah. And another thing regarding oils is people often talk about smoke points. So cooking cooking with certain oils. Is it the seed oils that are high in omega-6 and I guess unsaturated fatty acids, the other ones with the highest smoke points, is that an issue? For example, cooking with those kinds of oils on relatively high heat and something that people should generally avoid? Probably. So the smoke point is kind of a rough point where if you heat an oil, you'll see smoke coming off. My theory there is you're building up more kind of unwanted compounds within the oil itself. A real simple rule of thumb is generally saturated fat is going to be much better at high heat. So for cooking, if you're adding a little bit to the bottom of your frying pan, I generally just use coconut oil. Uh, you can use butter. Um, butter will scorch a little bit easier than coconut oil in my experience um, coconut oil will also melt at a very low point also so you don't really have a little bit of oil to your pan i just use a little bit of coconut oil nice nice perfect actionable for for anyone listening and some of those research teams as well i wonder if you could just dive into some of the things how i can see like some of the i guess main findings around for example omega-6 levels being positively associated with um LDL cholesterol, I think triglycerides in here, um, cardiovascular disease. Is there any, do you want me to just dive into some of the things? Okay, is there, what kind of risk factors are we looking at regarding high omega-6 and high omega-6 intake potentially? Yeah, so if you look at the research, this is where it gets to be a complete mm -hmm. mess because you could mm. have high omega-6, you could have high omega-6 in the face of low omega-3, or you could have high omega-6 and high omega-3. And then you have to look at, okay, well, what source 
did they come from? Did they do a nutrition analysis? Um, what was the outcome? Are we looking at cardiovascular health? Are we looking at cognition? Are we looking at diseases, cancer, whatever? Yeah. Those are all going to be different because it's a different context. And then if you look at how the studies were done, and some mm -hmm. of the ones I sent you were like, you know, meta-analyses of multiple different studies. Some of them were not necessarily always positive outcomes either. Some of them showed omega-6 didn't make any difference. Some showed that if it was lower, it was better. So you have a population which, if you're a general sort of Western population, most people are not super metabolically healthy at rest, which is going to be different than a population who's also metabolically mm. healthy. If you're metabolically healthy, you can handle kind of more insults acutely from higher amounts of omega-6, not that you'd want to have a ton of it in your diet. And then if we look at how do they actually run the study? So let's say the study is looking at omega-6. Let's say they are looking at omega-3. <laughs> and let's just say it's for cardiovascular health. Are we going to run the study long enough to see a mortality difference yeah. or what's called a hard endpoint? Like you're either dead or alive at the end of the study. The good part is it's easy to determine. The hard part is those studies take a long time and they have a whole bunch of other factors that you have to consider. And then if you get into, well, what if we're supplementing with EPA and DHA? Okay. A lot of the studies, so if you, if you back up and you're like, oh, well, we need to randomized placebo control, the crossover study, the, you know, perfect kind of golden setup for all of this research. Yeah. So one of the issues is when we look at the different studies is, you know, you kind of want the, the gold criteria is you randomize double blind placebo controlled trial. And so if we set that up and let's say we're doing this as a supplement using fish oil. Right. So fish oil is omega-3. We know it's essential. We know that generally it's, you know, my little air quotes here, kind of anti-inflammatory, has some other benefits with it. Let's say hypothetically we have 500 people. So in a perfect world, you would then split the people 250 per group. And one of the group, let's say we give them 800 milligrams of fish oil. The other group we don't. Then we look at some outcome, maybe like cardiac mortality. So they're either alive at the end of the study or they're not. The, the downside is that looks great on paper, but if you're looking at mortality as a hard endpoint, either upright or you're not at the end of the study, it's good because it's easy to determine. The hard part is you're probably gonna have to run the study for quite a while and you have other confounding factors. If we look at the dose, 800 milligrams of fish oil, in my opinion, is probably not gonna be enough to potentially move the needle all that much. Um, but it's easy to do in a study because, well, the one group got the fish oil and the other group didn't get the fish oil. But you probably want to know, well, how much omega-3 or how much fish oil did they have per person? Because you're taking everyone. Some people may have a fair amount. Some people may not have a little. And your intervention was just to add more to everybody else. So even though it's mm. randomized, it's double-blind, it's placebo-controlled, for things that have kind of what I call like a, a working biologic value. Uh, vitamin D studies fall in this area too. My biased opinion is you probably are better off running a blood test on everyone saying, okay, we want to get you to X level of EPA plus DHA or just EPA or DHA or whatever. The supplement that you're going to take is open-ended, meaning we're going to get you to hypothetically mm. two grams per day. Now, that may mean some people may get more of a supplement. Some people may not. 
the other group, maybe we're just going to give them a placebo and we're just going to leave them at a baseline, or we're only going to supplement them to one gram or something like that. To me, that's, it's harder. It's more expensive. It is more of a pain in the ass. It's not technically double blind placebo controlled per se, randomized crossover, all that kind of stuff. But to me, the study design makes more sense because now we can get you to a certain biologic level and see what happens at that point. Mm. Again, you could argue, well, maybe that level wasn't high enough, but it, it's more clean depending upon what you're trying to look at and you have a better idea of, of what's going on. So same thing if you're doing a vitamin D study, you know, let's get you to you know, U.S. units of 50 and then let's look at outcomes instead of, I don't know, just take a few IUs of vitamin D a day and see what happens. Um, but a lot of the studies are not necessarily set up that way either. So you may see the conclusion of, you know, fish oil doesn't do anything for cardiac mortality, but then you have to sit down and actually read the study. What do they look at? What were their outcome markers? What population was it? Are these metabolically healthy people? Are these unhealthy people? And the reality is it just gets to be really hard, even doing meta analyses of all these studies to figure out uh, what's going on. And my bias is that, you know, if you have omega-3 status that's pretty good and your omega-6 is relatively low or moderate, I think that's probably going to be be best, right? And there's a whole bunch of other data to support that. I think it was Alberts et al. 1991 did a study looking at omega-3 levels and um, I think it was at risk of MI and saw like a huge reduction if you were towards the higher end. Uh, there's been studies that have looked at different countries. Uh, countries who consume more fish have higher omega-3 levels. They have much less uh, cardiovascular risk. So at least in terms of cardiovascular risk, I haven't looked at everything for cancer and cognition and everything else. Probably going to be better off. Uh, metabolism side, there's a fair amount of stuff showing that fish oil is beneficial. But again, you probably have to look at what levels are we looking at? Because you'll find mm -hmm. other studies that maybe in healthy people who eat fish all the time, fish oil supplement may not be that beneficial, but they may be at a high enough level already. And so if you looked at just the conclusion, it would say, oh, you know, Mediterranean study number 465, fish oil supplementation was not beneficial. Well, if their levels were all really high to begin with, okay, that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it's ineffective, right? And so that's the hard part is you actually have to read the particular studies to see what's actually going on. I hope you're enjoying the chat so far. Before we get back to that, I just want to let you know that Sweet Science of Fighting is more than just a podcast. We have a full training app with strength conditioning programs for strikers, grapplers, and MMA athletes, so you don't have to think about what you're doing and you're getting access to the latest scientific methods to improve combat sports performance. We have programs specifically for judo, for jiu-jitsu, for wrestling, MMA, boxing, Muay Thai is coming soon. All these things are going to be in the training app. We also have a private community where some of the coaches that have been on the podcast are in there to help you with any training questions and any performance questions you have. For example, Andrew Usher and Casper DeVitt. We also have some online courses within the training app. They cover strength, conditioning, mental skills, and weight cutting. And finally, we now have Ryan Villalobos in the community, a second degree jujitsu black belt, who is there to break down any of your grappling matches that you want seen to by a second eye. He's currently breaking down videos on a separate Sweet Science of Fighting YouTube channel, and he will break down your video within the community. So if you have a match or a role that you just recorded, 
You can upload that in there and Ryan will break that down for you. So what are you waiting for? Jump down in the description. You can check out the Sweet Science of Fighting Underground. Otherwise, enjoy the podcast. Nice. And if someone isn't going to get their blood tested for whatever reason and they don't eat fish in their diet, is there, you recommend fish oil as just like a catch-all kind of daily insurance? And do you typically prescribe a certain amount in that instance? Um, or is it someone really needs to get their stuff checked to be able to do that accurately? Yeah, so there you're looking at what is the risk-reward. Um, obviously, I'm a PhD, so I'm not really prescribing anything. But in terms of potential recommendations based on the research, I think most people are probably fine with two to four grams of fish oil per day. Four grams probably being on the high side if you're really deficient. If you're not, yeah, two grams of combined EPA, DHA, I think you're going to be fine. There isn't really many risks that we know of. There's a lot of theoretical risks that people throw out, but in terms of the published literature, the risks are like very, very tiny. The only one that keeps coming up is that you may have some bleeding risk, but if you look at those, I think there's only two studies done on that. They're basically their INR, which is this little measurement, international normalization ratio, that tells you how fast your blood clots. Like that will change a little bit, but it probably doesn't make a huge difference, right? And even looking at case reports of, you know, patient bled out due to, you know, taking too much fish oil before hip replacement or back surgery or whatever, like those are almost non-existent. So we're not really seeing a lot of case reports showing that it's an issue. There's been well, more than enough fish oil supplementation now that we would have seen more of those. So again, you know, before you have a procedure, probably a good idea not to consume any of those things just to be on the safe side. But uh, super high doses, you may blend inflammation a little bit too much. Uh, you might run into some other issues, but again, I think you have to be at a really high dose for quite a while. Um, although I would not recommend this. Myself and another guy tried to take a lot of fish oil, <laughs> like five to eight grams a day, possibly oh. for a couple months. Again, this is not recommended. Um, and it appears, at least on a red blood cell level, you will just kind of saturate out at the top end. Like there appears to be a saturation point where you can't force any more into the cell membrane. Again, could you in theory have some immune issue and some other things that may happen during that time, potentially. Um, so I don't think you probably need very high doses. Last part too, is that it's gonna be conserved in the cell membranes itself. So it's going to, it's not something you have to cons worry about taking every day or if you miss a day or, you know, the washout period for it is going to be, you know, many, many, many weeks on the other end, even if you just stopped altogether. So it's kind of a slow buildup in the tissue and it's a slow mm -hmm. downside. We also don't have very good data on a lot of other tissues because they require a biopsy, at least in humans, you know, good luck trying to get a cardiac biopsy to look at red blood cell membrane content. Uh, so most of the data we have is off of just red blood cell content because it's easy to get. So how does someone go about choosing a quality fish oil? Because obviously you can find a lot of different ones on the market, source from different places, krill or fish, um, different ratios of EPA, DHA compared to the actual size of the, the pill. So how does someone choose the fish oil you know, to take? I like going with any company that has a reputation the reality is they don't 
it's more of an issue if they're not up to standards. If it's some mm. flyby fish oil or us company you've never heard of, if they someone out not the greatest stuff, yeah, they disappear to Fiji, never hear from them again. Not really much of a concern <laughs> to them, unfortunately. Um, the other part is you can ask them what do they uh, source. Most ones you're sourcing from smaller fish are going to be a little bit more environmentally uh, sustainable. They tend to be a cleaner source. Again, most fish oil is going to be what they call molecular processed. So they're going to do a molecular distillation to get rid of any heavy metals, but you'd want to ask to make sure that's actually tested for. Um, you could ask to see something called their, their COA, Certificate of Analysis. Um, those would be kind of the general things I would look at. Uh, cost is kind of a concern. Like if it's really, really cheap, it kind of makes me wonder a little bit. Outside of that, there's a whole bunch of debate about, oh, it's processed with high heat and we don't want that. And that's going to destroy and it's going to oxidize the fish oil. And maybe there's some truth to that, but we still see tons of positives and studies with fish oil that is all different, you know, qualities. So maybe, I don't know. Um, dosage wise, if you're not doing direct testing, it's hard to know. I would say anything that's the EPA, DHA, in a you know, somewhat one-to-one-ish, you're probably going to be fine. There's some instances where you might want higher DHA is a little bit more for brain. EPA is a little bit more for body. Again, that's kind of a general overalization. Mm-hmm. But anything that's relatively close to that, if you don't have testing, you'll be fine. There is some debate about retroconversion. Can you move between EPA and DHA back and forth? I've kind of lost track of the literature on that, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> we didn't think it was possible. Now we think it is possible. My bet is that you're probably in a healthy person going to be able to convert back and forth, I think. Again, the, the, the data on that is, I would say, split maybe at this point. Um, so just getting some EPA and DHA, you're going to be fine. I do wonder sometimes about people who are using it as a prescription through their physician. Uh, you'd want to check mm-hmm. what prescription you're using. Uh, some of them, like the early ones, were EPA only. So it's an EPA ethyl oh, modification. So that does make me wonder a little bit. Does it work for what they were doing? Yes. But, you know, having somewhat of a balance, which is what we normally see in nature, uh, that would that would be more of my uh, my preference. So you may consider if you're just using a high, high EPA, you can get some kind of more DHA. They tend to be more algae-based supplements to maybe not really balance it out entirely, but to just add a little bit more to, to kind of hedge your bets. Are you, are you ever looking at the EPA DHA total amount compared to, say, the total capsule size? So, for example, you get the 1,000 milligram mm-hmm. capsule with 300 milligrams of EPA DHA. Do you have a general rule of thumb you like to follow regarding that? I tell people just look at the actual EPA DHA on the side of the bottle. It's gotten pretty good now. Like most of the ones are relatively high concentrate. Mm. That wasn't really true mm. five, eight years ago. Mm. Um, but yeah, you want to look at the side of the label, look for EPA and DHA, not just total omega-3. Because total omega-3 mm. could be who knows what breakdown. Um, so for example, if it's three and 200, great. You're at 500 milligrams, say, per two capsules, and you can kind of figure out your dose. There's some data to show if you split it out over the course of a day, that might be a little bit better. Um, Interesting. I'd say not a huge amount of data. 
number one would be just get it in when you can. It is probably absorbed better with a meal. So if you have it with a meal with a little bit of fat, you are going to increase a little bit of absorption uh, from that. In terms of format, there's different basically forms of fish oil you can get, like kind of the form that's in a, a krill oil. Mm. I'm not convinced that there's going to be any real big difference, to be honest. I mean, maybe that gets absorbed a little bit better, but per dose, it's going to be quite a bit more expensive. So I'm not not convinced you would need to necessarily go that route. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Perfect. Um, hopefully we don't run into any more technical, technical issues. I want to jump onto ketone esters quickly to, yeah. to round this out. So ketones, obviously, they actually exploded on the market uh, maybe four or five years ago. And then they kind of stuck mm -hmm. around for a year. They kind of died out. And obviously now it sounds like you're doing some research with it. So what's the deal with ketone esters? Is there something there? Is this something... This is, is this the future of sports performance? It's it's something I've been kind of fascinated with for, God, since they ever came out. Um, I mean, there's pros and cons to a ketogenic diet, but using a supplement to basically put you in a state of ketosis, to me, I just find like super fascinating because you can do that in a diet that has higher amounts of carbohydrates also. So it's independent of what your background diet is. So normally if you were to try to get to high levels of ketones, let's say two millimolar or above, right? So if we were to stick your finger and measure blood in the US, probably need to do a hard ketogenic diet for two, three, four, five, six days, maybe longer, depending on an individual, which is gonna be higher fat, low to moderate protein, probably less than 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. Um, so depending on your sport, that may not necessarily be best for your, your sport. With the ketone supplement, whether it's a salt or an ester, you literally consume it as a supplement and you can see ketones in the bloodstream within 20 to 30 minutes. Um, there are mm. some ketone salts on the market where they will bind to the main ketone, which is BHB, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Right now, they'll generally do a quad salt, so they'll split it across four different ions like calcium, magnesium, sodium, etc. And they do that so you can get more absorption across the gut. But what you'll find is even combining them with like a C8 oil, like you can't get really high levels in the blood. Um, you'll generally be doing the Wilford Brimley two-step in the bathroom if you go too high on it because it... So I may have tested that a few times in the past. It's not real fun. It's not dangerous, <laughs> but just not, not real fun. Um, with an ester, so now they're going to take uh, BHB or other like-minded molecules. They're going to bind it to another compound. And this allows you to get high levels in the blood. So some of the ones I've tested, you can get two, three millimolar within 20 minutes, which mm. is pretty crazy. Now, okay. that kind of opens up a whole bunch of different things you could do because now you could do this in, in while you're fasting. You could do this while having stored glycogen in terms of muscle, stored uh, glycogen in the liver. Um, and then it gets into the question of, well, like you said, what are the fish for? So initially early on, I was thinking they may be beneficial as an alternate uh, fuel during exercise. And there is some data to show that that may be possible. For all out speed and power, eh, we've got enough data now showing that even high levels of ketones probably not going to be super beneficial. Now, if we combine ketones with carbohydrates, uh, Cox did this in a study published in Cell in high level endurance uh, bike riders. 
Um, they showed a pretty big improvement, like still single digit, but for you know advanced athletes, pretty pretty significant. Um, not everyone has been able to reproduce that. So combined with other carbohydrates, maybe. If you look at like the last Tour de France, again by self-report data, almost all the top teams were using some form of ketone with their riders. Hmm. Uh, how much? To what varying degrees? For what reason? Who knows? No one's really sure. I've heard everything from fall off their bike and hit their head. We want ketones on board to potentially mitigate the risk of a concussion. Yeah, there's some mm. data to support that. To potentially being used as a fuel. To potentially having better cognition decision-making under high levels of fatigue. So no one's entirely sure as to why. And even if they did know, they're probably not going to tell the public anyway. <laughs> but even just, you know, <laughs> private conversations, that type of thing. My bias right now, if you said, hey, these ketones are potentially good for, there is some interesting data that the BHV molecule itself may be anti-catabolic, meaning it may break mm. down some muscle tissue. Again, we don't have a ton of studies on that. There's a couple that have been out that have looked at that. And that would make sense, right? If you think about starvation conditions is when ketone levels were normally pretty high, you do want to try to preserve as much muscle as you can because that is your bank for amino acids that other parts of your body need. And we know from some other data that if amino acid levels get really low, kind of the nitrogen hypothesis, that that actually determines how long you're going to be upright in like a pure starvation condition. Most people have more than enough energy to support themselves for a long period of time, even lean people. So one of the theories is that it's amino acid levels that are the limiter. If your body is producing more ketones during starvation, maybe that's a little bit of a break to try to not lose a whole bunch there. They have some interesting appetite suppression effects. So if you're doing lower caloric diets, it might be useful there. Obviously, they do have some calories, but the calorie content is pretty low. And if I were to bet, I would say that there may be significant benefits to cognition under high levels of fatigue. Um, so Brandon Egan has done uh, some of this work. Uh, my buddy, Dr. Hunter Waldman, they're just publishing a new study. Uh, with my buddy Andrew and Dom D'Agostino, Brandon Egan, a bunch of people looking at cognition during high intense exercise. That at the end of exercise, or you think of <clears throat> towards the end of a game when fatigue levels are high, you still have to make decisions and you have to make them relatively fast. So the person who can do that better is going to have a competitive advantage. So there's some early data showing that with ketones on board, your cognitive fatigue under these high stress conditions appears to be a little bit less. And if I were to bet on positive results or more data that would agree right now, that's where I would kind of hedge my bets. Hey guys, it's me again. I just want to let you know that I also have Sweet Times of Fighting rash guards and shorts, so you can represent Sweet Times of Fighting on the mats and within competition. We have the classic, just like the shirt I'm wearing, rash guard, Sweet Science of Fighting on the front, and we have the logos on the sleeves, and then X Marsh on the back. We also have that in a shorts variation, same thing, with the Sweet Science of Fighting writing on one leg, and we have the logo on the other, but my personal favorite, this is my personal favorite part. We have this in black and white, and it is the Tunifar Protector Guardian version of the Sweet Science of Fighting with the logo on the back. 
This was designed by a Māori designer back in New Zealand. So a bit of my heritage on this jersey. It represents the acknowledgement of battle and war. It also represents strength and stability and also has the New Zealand silver fern. But even if you're not a Kiwi, cop this. This is an awesome design. It is a custom made design. You will not find it anywhere else. So check that, that'll also be down in the description with a discount code, but back to the podcast. Interesting, that's very interesting stuff. So, are ketone esters readily available to buy on the market currently? Yeah, they've been out for quite a while. There's, there's different forms. So the main form was kind of, was from uh, Dr. Veach's lab in the UK. So that's one form or kind of what they call monoester. Uh, HVMN in California, they purchased the rights to use that original ester. So in their original product, which I've used uh, testing through the Kerrigan Institute a fair amount, uh, that was the same ester. Uh, HVMN has now switched because I, I, again, I don't, I think this is public knowledge, but I don't think they renewed their contract because they didn't own the patent on it. So obviously they would have had to pay in order to use it. So they've switched to using what they call a ketone diol, uh, which is a butane diol, which does get converted to ketones in the liver. There's some debate about, can you consume enough of it to get high levels of ketone because of the conversion? Is it potentially toxic at higher levels? Data would say probably. Um, both of them taste horrible. They, they tried to reformulate it to taste a little bit better. I'd, think it tastes pretty bad um there's a couple other smaller companies that have other kind of ketone esters uh, the one from tecton which again like i said i'm helping them with their studies so i'm probably biased towards it uh, they took the bhb molecule and, and bonded it to glycerol so glycerol as you know is the backbone of fats so you have a triglyceride a triglyceride is a glycerol backbone and then three fatty acids that come off in order to use the fats for fuel, you have an enzyme that goes in that cleaves off the fat from the glycerol backbone. Uh, glycerol backbone goes to generally, and you've got free fatty acids that can be used. So the glycerol in the tecton uh, ketone is bonded to BHB, so beta-hydroxybutyrate. So both of them are you know, relatively known to the body. The pharmacokinetics of it appear to be a little bit different. Um, but you can get pretty high levels. You can easily get up above two millimolar relatively fast. Um, they've got some pretty impressive safety data. <clears throat> it doesn't appear to be capped uh, so much by dose. Like you can escalate the dose for um, a higher response. That comes right now in a canned beverage, which has about 10 grams mm. of it. Um, and it tastes pretty decent. I mean, I wouldn't say it <laughs> is like the best thing I've ever had in my life, but it's pretty good. Which, if you've tried any of the other ketone esters, they are not tasty at all. They are <laughs> really bad. Um, the only issue with the tecton ester right now is that it's very expensive as a downside. Um, so it's mm. taken them almost, I think, seven years to get it to this point in terms of production. They're hoping to get the cost down in the future, and then possibly, you know, potentially other forms, maybe a powder or different forms like that. Um, yeah, so it's it's pretty interesting, and I think there'll be a lot. More with that in the future. And then I did a whole program, uh, educational program for the Kerrigan Institute, looking at the effects of ketones and ketogenic diets related to uh, concussion and traumatic brain injury. I think there's mm. very interesting data on that. But the short version is if you take a big hit to the head, 
the couple of things that happen, one, your glucose metabolism goes completely offline. It just gets a monkey wrench thrown in it. Uh, you could have the blood brain barrier open up. If that opens up, now you've got a whole bunch of compounds that are running amok in your brain, again, causing high amounts of neuroinflammation. Uh, ketone esters or even ketones themselves. Uh, ketones will uh, pinch hit for energy in the brain. So even a concussed brain can still use ketones for energy. So now you've got an energy source that can kind of mitigate some of that energy crisis from glucose metabolism getting messed up. Uh, they do have anti-inflammatory uh, properties. We do know that they can cross uh, into the brain. So we don't have a ton of human st studies on it so far. Um, but again, you're back to looking at what is the risk reward profile. So for me, again, this is just me personally. Um, if I'm going out doing you know some kiteboarding stuff and hopefully I don't get drop 20 feet out of the sky on my head. But if I do, for me personally, <clears throat> I would use a lot of ketone esters for a while to potentially try to mitigate some of those downstream um, effects. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting piece of research to keep an eye on. But I might wrap this up here just, just in case we run into any more technical difficulties, Mike. But yeah. where can people find you and, and follow what you're doing? Yeah, so last part too, if you work with <clears throat> mixed martial artists, right? What do you have to do during a mixed martial arts fight? You have to be very cognitive aware under a high level of fatigue. And maybe with something that might help if you actually get knocked in the head. Again, something to think about with, with that. Or, you know, during a weight cut scenario where obviously you're, you're cutting down, that type of thing too. You still want some energy to train. Uh, but yeah, people can find me. Main website is uh, MikeTNelson.com. And getting on the newsletter is where most of the information goes out. Uh, you can go to MikeTNelson.com slash newsletter, and you can get on there. I also have a podcast, which is a Flex Diet podcast, and then the Flex Diet certification and the Physiologic Flexibility Certification. Perfect. I'll link all those in the, in the description uh, for everyone listening. But thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it.